This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. In town this week to conduct the orchestra, and in the studio today, is the British conductor Michael Francis, who has recently been appointed music director of the Florida Orchestra. As we enter the beginning of winter here in Ottawa, it's easy to sympathize with those poor musicians down south who will never enjoy the experience of taking a dog sled to work. I'm sure Michael failed to take this fact into account before accepting the Florida position, but I suppose he'll have to grin and bear it. My second guest today is Barbara Smith, director of the National Youth Orchestra of Canada. Michael will be conducting the NYO next summer, so Barbara is in town to hear Michael's concerts with the NEC Orchestra this week and to discuss their mutual plans for next summer with the NYO. Barbara and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Pleasure. Uh, Michael, the concert this week consists of several works uh, by Britton, Brahms, Hindemith, variations upon older themes as well as the Liszt Second Piano Concerto. Could you explain how you put this show together? Yes, I always find variations to be one of the most interesting um, aspects of compositions because it really gives a composer a great chance to show both their skill, their inventiveness, imagination, uh, and also just how they can really extrapolate so much from such a simple theme. And each of these composers does it, does it in an extraordinarily unique way. Britain's was, first of all, a very affectionate homage to his teacher, Frank Bridge. And in it, each of the movements will represent a certain part of his personality. So we would have um, Frank Bridge's humor or his, his gaiety, or you'd have his tremendous sense of structure and skill. You'd have his wit, all sorts of different things within it. But the actual undercurrent of it's far more interesting because it's a tremendous commentary upon 1930s Europe. So in fact, this opening theme starts almost like a martial figure and then we have this quartet all on its own and it symbolizes edwardian england at its finest this sort of golden age downton abbey and everything sort of four friends on a lawn and then we go into this rather dangerous march which you feel the opposition coming in from the east but then what he does is very witty he offers us a, a french romance and then an italian aria and what he's saying in this is that how can we be so interested in these vacuous sort of art forms and, and entertainments while all this trouble is going on? Here's a wonderful parody on Gilbert and Sullivan in there. And then towards the end, we have this tremendous funeral march in which you feel the, his mourning of the world of Beethoven, of Bruckner, of Bach, and how this is all going to be lost. And at the end, he seems to quote something that sounds almost like Mahler 9. And for him, Mahler was a very important composer because... Mahler sensed and suffered that to be ostracized as a Jew in the same way that Britain did as a homosexual in the late 1930s uh, before he went to America. So this, it, within these simple variations, he's able to give and offer so much. Um, and the list, which is something rather different, is less a, s a set of variations, more a set of transformations. You feel this sort of Byron hero in the piano and then how he would sort of wander 
sometimes very melancholically, and occasionally you get this revolutionary spirit, these huge poetic meanderings within the piano that don't seem to go anywhere, but then wonderfully link all the passages together. You really, it sort of almost has that element of the Gothic novel of the 19th century, but equally it has something really um, fantastical and, and very, very touching, and how he sort of threads this through, it just feels like the perfect romantic concerto. Uh, the Brahms Hein variations uh, is something rather different in the sense that I think Brahms really loved um, the witticisms of Haydn. And this piece, what he particularly was drawn to was the fact it was structured in five-bar phrases. Typically music is in four-bar, eight-bar or two-bar, sometimes six or three, but five is unusual. And so he was really drawn to this. And then how he turns each of these movements into something, again, very poetic, incredibly different, but all related to the St. Anthony Chorale, which, as we've uh, subsequently discovered, was not actually by Haydn, but we won't tell Brahms. It's like the uh, trumpet voluntary, isn't it? Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the Hindemith uh, Symphonic Metamorphosis, I think, is just a fantastic piece. And it does an awful lot to dispel this sort of the, the impression of Hindemith being something incredibly worthy um, and as I mentioned to the orchestra, I, I heard someone describe uh, a reviewer, or she, the reviewer said it, I think it must have been around the same time, that her idea of hell was to be forced to listen to Ludus Tonalis with a full bladder. <laughs> <laughs> but actually Hindemith was an incredibly witty man, and he was a fantastic cartoonist, so he would draw all his friends in his very humorous and wonderfully witty ways. And what I think he's done here is because when he wrote this, he'd arrived in America. He had a Jewish wife, so obviously he needed to leave Nazi Germany in 1940. But he came straight into America and assimilated himself into the culture in a very positive way. He became a professor at Yale. And unlike Bartok, who in the Concerto for Orchestra, you feel this great longing and pain about him, the fact that he's, he was ostracized from Europe. Plus he was dying at the time, wasn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the Concerto for Orchestra, you sense something quite different. But here, you sense a great sense of optimism. Um, and there's uh, this sort of varsity song in his, all its crudest form at the end. There's jazz in the second movement. And even the, his variations upon Weber, he takes sort of Weber's very sort of um, faux Hungarian movement, which is from a piano duet. All of the Weber themes are from some rather nondescript piano duets. And he turns it into something rather barbaric, but always funny, always witty. And even the Chinese second movement, the Turandot, the melodies, he takes, again, Weber's really barely Chinese melody and turns it into something, again, tremendously successful, witty, complicated, but also... Um, it's a complete orchestral showpiece in all its best form. Everybody gets the melody, and that doesn't happen very often. It's such a fun piece to play. I mean, everyone knows the Hindemith sonatas because we all have to play them when we're students. Mm. And the final section of the trumpet sonata is called All Men Must Die. <laughs> and everyone has this idea of Hindemith as being a sort of a, a Teutonic version of the harmonious blacksmith, you know, very workmanlike, very skillful composer, but not very interesting. But yeah. what, what you said this week, you know, at the first rehearsal sort of it disabuses you of that notion of him being a strictly academic composer, you know. Absolutely. I, I, I always think of him as someone actually in these pieces with great sense of parody and wit. And, and the Matis de Mahler has got such an incredible social commentary upon the time. And the imagination and colour and painting that he is able to achieve through the music is really astonishing. So I think, I mean, you know, if you read his book, Elementary Training for Musicians and all the other things, it, it, there is a, certainly a dry side to him, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And Ludus Tonalis, of course, being the apogee of that. Um, but I think it has left his reputation somewhat excruciatingly worthy, and that's perhaps not fair. It's too bad because it deserves to be played more. 
Absolutely. You know, we've done Noblesse et Visione here. I think we've done Matisse perhaps once. Mm -hmm. And we've done this two or three times, but he deserves to uh, he deserves to have a, a wider audience, I think, doesn't he? Absolutely, and I think he could play almost every instrument in the orchestra. So he has a tremendous sense. And everyone, when you play this music, it just works. It doesn't ever write in a way that's awkward for the instruments. It's demanding, but it's it works. And some composers, that's not not always the case. In fact, even Richard Strauss, I and mean, he's a tremendous composer, but some some things are a little awkward to play. And you think of Aaron Copeland, some of the string writing is incredibly mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Worthwhile, I mean, it's always worthwhile to do because it's tremendous music. But here for Hindemith, it just has such an effortless skill with the orchestra. The thing I like about it as a brass player is that when you're playing as a section, it feels almost as though you're playing in a band. Absolutely. It's that yeah. easy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, his piece for strings and brass, of course, is a good, a good example of that, mm -hmm. the way he uses the sonorities of both and blends them together. But you do feel very comfortable playing this music. Yeah, and I think it requires something different for the brass. I mean, often when we brass, especially the trombone section, you, you're a tuba player yourself, so you know it if you're playing Brahms or something along those lines or some Sibelius, the symphonies that have tuba, you, you require a more rounded sound, sort of taking the front off the note. It's a sonority. Exactly, sort of more, almost like an organ. It's kind of this mass sound that comes without attack. Whereas here in the second movement particularly, he's really quoting the big band, sort of the Count Basie 1940s big band of the Village Vanguard in New mm -hmm. York. And he was only 80 miles up in Yale. It's not far from New York, so I'm sure he went there. And the, that requires a very much a front of the note, a pa, not a wa. And that sort of writing um, is, is very, I imagine, to be very enjoyable. And I'm, I was in the London Symphony Orchestra as a double bass player before, and that kind of sound world was very much what I heard all the time, a slight ping on the front of the note. And I think the Hindemith forces all orchestras to do that. We have to play that way as brass players. I mean, most of the time, of course, it depends on the hall too. Sometimes, in particular this hall, mm -hmm. you need a lot of articulation yeah. to get the sound to uh, to be present in the hall. Absolutely. So you have Absolutely. to overdo it sometimes. And you're all doing marvelously well with it. Well, thank you. <laughs> Pass it on. <laughs> Barbara, uh, could you give us a bit of a brief history of the National Youth Orchestra of Canada and how do you view the present mandate? Ah, well, uh, the orchestra's been in existence since 1960, so we're going into our 55th year. It's got a a long history. Uh, Forty percent of Canadian orchestral musicians, professional musicians, have come through the program, and many more are playing in orchestras around the world and, and in other ensembles. Um, it has evolved since its original mandate. Originally, when uh, Walter Susskind uh, founded the orchestra back in 1960, the idea was to prepare young people uh, to um, tour. Uh, and we still tour. We're one of the few um, youth orchestras or young professional orchestras that do tour anymore, and we do that every year. But uh, beyond that now, we've evolved to become really this country's preeminent uh, orchestral training institute. Um, but we don't confine the training to just orchestra music. That's still at the core, of course, of what we do. But uh, we spend uh, a number of weeks training in uh, chamber music ensembles, um, we have a very intensive two-week program of, of strictly chamber music, but we also um, engage the students in a variety of different seminars and workshops about the business of music, about how to, uh, how to make it a go of it, frankly, in a very difficult uh, environment and, and a career that they're embarking on. So we have, um, you know, faculty roundtables and uh, we have panel discussions where we bring in professionals 
in the um, within the profession to have Q and A's with the students. We have a pioneering injury prevention and musicians' health program. The um, we noticed a number of years ago that many of our students were coming to us with pre-existing injuries, often caused by uh, overuse, by playing too much, quite frankly. And uh, and then after spending a summer with us, that would just exacerbate this injury. So we decided it was incumbent on us as the preeminent orchestral training institute in this country uh, to address this need and to give students the tools that they need to be able to prevent injuries before they start and how to cope with them when they do. So we have a whole medical team that works with us. It's integrated, but we do workshops as well. So it's a, a very comprehensive program. I see. Um, I've been doing it for 10 years. I should mention, perhaps, mm-hmm. that uh, many people in the uh, National Arts Centre Orchestra have either played with the youth orchestra or have coached it, or, in fact, a or couple both. have been on the board. So there's a very strong relationship between all of the Canadian orchestras and the National Youth Orchestra. Does that work the same way in, uh, in Britain? I think so. I mean, um, of course, in England, we have more regional orchestras. The county orchestras are very strong. Um, And so there's always a great connection to those. There is the National Youth Orchestra. I didn't do the National Youth Orchestra as a child. I did the European Union Youth Orchestra, which was different. But I I would say that most musicians have certainly all been through a county youth orchestra. And probably the best ones have also been through the National Youth Orchestra as well. But what I noticed is slightly different here. And I was at a um, a dinner with um, the principal bass here, Joel Quarrington, who I know from London as well. Um, and Christopher Mallard, the... Millard. Millard, do forgive me. He's not a duck. I no, apologize. <laughs> very <Millard>. opposite. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he, he, he's our principal bassoon here. And uh, they were talking about the fact that they met 42 years ago in the orchestra, and they were giving me this great history about it, and the fact they sing madrigals and things, and, and what a great sense of pride. So I noticed that here there's, there's perhaps a more obvious national pride about the orchestra. And actually, I think it probably has a greater... Um, influence in terms of the influx of musicians into the major orchestras. I'm sure that this has been a great funnel through which many have been through. Um, the other one I, I love to work with is the New World Symphony in Miami. And wherever I go now in America, or and also in, in Canada as well, the amount of musicians who've been through this, it's fabulous. So I think the work that you're doing here in, in Canada with the National Youth Orchestra of Canada and also you know, the, the New World Symphony, these things are utterly essential to our business. And they're making a huge difference. I mean, the standards nowadays are incredibly high. On my instrument, the double bass, I'd hate to have to do an audition now that I did did sort of 10 years ago or 12 years ago. I mean, the standards are rising year by year. And a lot of it is because of um, institutions like these. What's remarkable about the NYO um, is that for many years, uh, I mean, Canada is a, a young country musically uh, compared to uh, the European countries. And many of the, uh, in particular, many of the brass players who went through the program, say, 20 or 30 years ago, they received excellent instruction. Um, in fact, that was probably the, the biggest influence on their lives at the time, because at that time, in Canada, there were very few really first-class brass teachers, mm. very few of them anyway. Nowadays, uh, there are many more, of course, but uh, for a long time, I mean, for instance, a couple of our trombone players were in the, in the NYO with, with Dick Erb who was the low brass coach before I was. I've done it for 10 years. I think Dick did it for, what, 35 years, so. 40 years. He was a tremendous influence. Uh, Vince Chikowitz was the trumpet coach for many years from the Chicago Symphony. 
tremendous influence on brass playing in Canada, both of them. Mm. Now, you said the other day that you'd worked with the uh, National Youth Orchestra of Scotland, was it, mm -hmm. recently? Yes, I did. I worked with them this summer, and we had a... No bagpipes. No bagpipes, <laughs> no. Oh, so there were some sort of rustic instruments because we were doing the Alpine Symphony of Strauss. Mm -hmm. um, so that was fabulous to do. And as I sort of mentioned to the young musicians, um, so the program was Walton Johannes, uh, Johannesburg Festive Overture, and then Sally Beamish's Trumpet Concerto with Hawk and Hardenberger, and then uh, the Alpine Symphony as the second half. But as I mentioned to the young musicians, I said, you know, really treasure this because, first of all, the Alpine Symphony is too expensive. Can't put, most orchestras can't, can't play it very it. often. You know, that many offstage uh, brass, it's just very expensive to do well. Um, and also, it just really struck me working with them is that sheer sense of joy and discovery of doing a piece for the first time. You never forget it. And I can tell you almost every program I played in youth orchestra because the first time you play Tchaikovsky 6 or Mahler 1 or any of them, it leaves an indelible mark. It's just such a wonderful journey of discovery. You just think this is the greatest thing. And so to work with people, young musicians who are um, performing music for the first time, and then, as you say, trying to help shape them in the right way, um, sometimes eradicating bad, bad habits before they start, but equally just trying to show them the potential of what can be achieved. It's just it's just phenomenally wonderful. And, and of course, we all know that music is many ways a, a microcosm of society and we're getting people to work together in the right way it's just so rewarding and uh, it seems to be magnified working with young musicians of course there are things that that go wrong in a way that would never happen with more experience and professional orchestras but equally that's also part of the fun as well in in rehearsals is oh you really didn't hear that okay well let's let's go back and try it again and do have a listen <laughs> Barbara, when you're looking for conductors, I know it's a it's a tough uh, job because you know people are booked years in advance. Uh, how do you work it out? I mean, how do you work it out between you, uh, you first of all to find a conductor, and then you, Michael, to accept? I mean, what kinds of conversations do you have to have before you agree? Well, well, finding the the conductor, identifying the one that you want, uh, is is you know a, a challenge. Uh, quite frankly, um, I really rely quite heavily on my faculty. Um, I have a faculty of professional musicians like yourself and uh, professional music educators, people who've worked with, with many of these conductors that I, that I do engage. And um, they will often come to me with recommendations, and that was the case with Michael. Michael was um, conducted here last year as well. That's right. And uh, the Toronto Symphony in Vancouver. And uh, the musicians in, on my faculty from those orchestras um, were uh, spoke glowingly about Michael, and said you must you must find a way to to engage him. So um, I called his management, and the rest, as they say, is history. But then once we connect, we start talking about repertoire and the sorts of things we want to do, and the tour, and uh, we work it out between us. The pressure's on, Michael. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you've had an illustrious um, run of conductors as well here. Um, but uh, for me, it was it was I mean, it was one of the easiest decisions to take on a chance to to work with a group like this and to to, to do such a variety of repertoire and two programs, which is great as well. Um, it, it took me about three seconds to decide, and even that, I was already decided by the first second. It's just absolutely, and it just fitted in the diary. I mean, I think I, I fly in from Japan, so it just works almost to the day. So I thought, great, this seems rather providential. I'll be there. The best part about working with the Anne is that it's a very collaborative atmosphere. 
between all the coaches and the conductors and the staff. I mean, it's a tremendous, uh, it's almost like a family, mm. really. And you really get sucked into it. Uh, it's a very emotional, uh, it can be very emotional when, when you get very close to the kids and uh, it's almost like they're your children, you know. Yeah, well, especially since it's such a long time, you have almost a month with them. That's right. And I think that's, that, that's really fabulous. And, and ha having come from the orchestral world and... Uh, it wasn't that long ago I was playing in youth orchestra. So 14 years ago, I think, I played with the European Union Youth Orchestra. So it's sort of just about within living memory um, that uh, these things really matter. And that sense, as you say, that sense of emotion, when the tour's over, I remember I just, oh. I, I hated it being over when I was young. I hated it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the last concert's always difficult because uh, the, the musicians are invariably playing through tears. It's that oh, yeah. last moment. Yeah. It's the last time that orchestra will ever be together as that orchestra. Some will return in, in subsequent years, but others won't. There'll be a new crop. And so it is. And they've just spent six weeks of their, of their life living in a very intimate and, uh, quarters, and uh, it's, it, they forge lifelong friendships. It's, uh, it's life-altering. Mm -hmm. And the emotion is, is certainly there. I know there's a moment in, in the rehearsals when I look back at the, uh, the faculty who are all sitting in on the rehearsals, Something magical happens at, at at some point where it all comes together and they begin to sound like an orchestra and not just a bunch of, of individual players. And I often see people like yourself and, mm -hmm. and others with tears because uh, yeah. all their hard work has We're issued with hankies. When <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really is. It really is a very uh, emotional experience. Well, I'm not surprised because if you yeah. think about music, what I love about it, is that you can straight away discuss the deeper things in life. And when I was working with uh, the National Youth Orchestra of Scotland and we were talking about you know, really deep, deep things philosophically about life and about nature and about the relationship of Strauss with God, all sorts of things that you can't talk about normally. And so you're really trying to help them understand, attempt to go deeper into into aspects of life. And as a conductor, you use different types, you sometimes use metaphor, you use all sorts of different images, anything to try and um, help find that. And so people really connect with it. And of course, above language, music doesn't need words. It's just that sense of instinctive understanding of what the composer is really trying to say. And that is so powerful. And it really opens people up. And therefore, of course, it means the parting can be worse. Well, we spend a lot of time, actually, when we coach, uh, working on context. You know, context is so important for any art because there are so many relationships. You mentioned Britain in the 30s. You know, you think of, of uh, the poet Auden. Yes. Uh, there are so many connections and so many ways of, of approaching the same subject. Absolutely. And we try to do that with the kids. You know, last year we did a Mahler symphony. So we always have sessions where we, uh, we play music. You know, we play the songs, you know, mm. Fischer Dieskau singing Mahler. Uh, just to give you an idea of, of, mm. the, of the style. The same thing with Strauss when we did the um, Rosenkavalier waltzes a couple of years ago, the suite from Rosenkavalier. You know, you try and tell the kids, well, actually, you should be really rubato here. You know, imagine the soprano voice and then you play it for them and, oh, I get it, mm. I get it. Mm. So it's a wonderful chance uh, for us as coaches and for you as a conductor to actually not just conduct but actually teach them yeah. because they're like sponges. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm tremendously excited. I'm even more excited now after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything like uh, anything we should know about the, the session coming up next year? Well, uh, we're still working on uh, on the uh, repertoire, but I think we've settled on doing uh, Planets by Holtz, which is very exciting. We haven't done it in the 12 years a I've been time. with. It's a long time since we've done that. Um, and a couple other pieces that we haven't done um, in, in at least a decade, 
like the uh, Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances, the Bartok Dance Suites, and uh, the jury's still out on whether or not we're going to do Don Quixote, which is certainly one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, pieces of all time. I just love, I love Strauss and I love that particular uh, piece, which is really a concerto. So uh, right. we'll see if we can manage to, to get that in. Don't but, forget the uh, viola player as well. And the <laughs> viola player Sandra as Panza, well. We need him as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and what else we were doing? And um, Strauss, Strauss dance the uh, Dance of the Seven Veils, yeah. which is a lovely piece, and um, I'm excited about that as well. And we're still auditioning for the dancer. And we are still <laughs> indeed, indeed. Maybe you, Nick. <laughs> and, uh, and then we're going to take it on tour. We're going to be playing in some of if not the best halls in Canada, as we as we try to do every year. Um, but we will be uh, going from central Canada to the west. And um, we're, I'm, I'm quite, quite happy that we're going to be uh, giving these students the opportunity to play in the best halls and uh, experience different acoustic and, and different audiences. And uh, it's great training for them and, and lots of fun. And we'll look forward to the concert here at the National Arts Centre. Indeed, indeed. It's around the end of August. July 29th. July 29th we'll be here. It's in the book. There you go. Well, thanks very much for coming in today. And we'll close out the session by giving the listeners a little taste of the National Youth Orchestra of Canada playing the final section of the Rite of Spring. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. 
This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NEC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.